The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speaker. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice from your own physician. Thanks for joining us today on our podcast about anecdotes from practicing interventional spine. The topics are designed to be casual discussions about differences in practice. We hope you all enjoy learning from your colleagues who express their reasoning why they do what they do in this podcast. I'm your host, Renee Rosati. Today's guest is Dr. Anand Joshi, Associate Program Director of the Interventional Spine Fellowship at Emory in Atlanta, Georgia. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Joshi. Dr. Rosati, thank you so much for having me. And to everyone in the audience, we really appreciate your attention and hope that we can make this an educational session. Great. Tell us a little bit about uh, your practice currently and where you trained and you know what path you took up until Emory today. Yes, yes. Thank you, Renee. Um, so I am a interventional physiatrist currently in practice at the Emory Spine Center. And I started here a couple of years ago. Prior to that, I was in practice for many years at Duke University. I did my residency in uh, physical medicine and rehab at East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. And I followed that with Interventional Spine and Musculoskeletal Medicine Fellowship at the Penn Spine Center at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Okay. And who was your fellowship director there? Oh, I was very lucky to train underneath Dr. Chris Plasteris, who remains a great mentor and a friend all the way to this day. I've heard wonderful things about him. Absolutely. Well-deserved. All right. And tell us a little bit about yourself, what you like to do outside of the clinic. Yes. Yeah, so um, so I am a father to two very young kids. I have a three-year-old and a six-year-old. And so much of my time is spent uh, wrangling and corralling them. <laughs> but I do also enjoy with my family exploring uh, Atlanta. Uh, we love sampling uh, the many different food offerings. Uh, I think my favorite restaurant in Atlanta is in Decatur and it goes by the name of Raging Burrito. So if anyone's oh. in that area and wants to have uh, some wonderful food, I would highly recommend them. Wow. I missed out on that. You didn't tell me that during fellowship that I had to go there before I left Atlanta. <laughs> well, it's never too late. Perhaps one of these days we can uh, we can catch up and uh, enjoy uh, dinner at the Raging Burrito. <laughs> that would be great. All right. Well, let's let's dive into our topic today. We're going to talk about uh, EMGs for radiculopathy, whether or not we should order them or should we just cut to the chase and get an MRI? Um, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think this is an excellent question and a very important topic. So um, there are probably many different uh, practice patterns uh, surrounding this. I think that my personal practice pattern is driven by sort of what my concept of what a radiculopathy is. So I basically think of a radiculopathy as a situation where a nerve root ain't working properly. So <laughs> in other words, the nerve root has several functions. It's meant to supply 
uh, sensation to a dermatome or strength to a myotome. And it's also meant to support various uh, stretch reflexes. And many of these things are identifiable on physical examination. So you may be able to elicit uh, myotomal weakness uh, during your physical exam. And you certainly might be able to find a diminished reflex as well. Now, once you observe something like that on your physical exam, then radiculopathy becomes part of the differential diagnosis, perhaps one of the more likely parts of the, uh, of the differential diagnosis. And from there, you kind of have a working diagnosis of radiculopathy. And what MRI would do is it would show you why a radiculopathy could be happening. Is there some sort of stenosis or is there some sort of compressive uh, pathology from a disc herniation? And so I think that my personal practice pattern is to, um, if I identify a deficit like that on a physical exam, is to go straight for an MRI. Um, I think that EMG is helpful um, if the situation is unclear, but EMG ultimately does not tell you why a deficit is present. It can tell you um, that a deficit is present. Um, but the anatomical basis for the radiculopathy is best identified on MRI. What if the patient doesn't have really clear signs of radiculopathy other than pain? So no sensory changes, no weakness in the myotome, but you know the patient wants something done. Um, then is an EMG indicated or no, still try to get an MRI? Yeah, that's, a, that's another excellent question. And I think another very common scenario. Maybe it's even more common to see that than to find a deficit where you have someone that has pain, but no obvious deficit. I think in that situation, I would also lean towards getting the MRI over the EMG. So EMG is most likely to be positive. Your likelihood ratio is much higher when you actually have a deficit, particularly a strength or a reflex deficit. When you don't have a deficit, if there is no strength abnormality, there is no reflex abnormality, uh, it is definitely less likely to have what we think of as a positive EMG. Um, you may find some chronic uh, abnormalities, such as motor unit remodeling changes based on polyphasia or large amplitude or long duration motor units. But in terms of the um, more unequivocal and definite findings, such as you might see with uh, spontaneous activity and positive sharp waves and fibrillations, I think that those are gonna be much more likely to be found when you actually have a deficit. So in the situation where you have pain, but no deficit, I think that that would still be better investigated by obtaining an MRI prior to an EMG. Mm -hmm. Cause it may not even be advanced enough to show anything on the EMG. Perhaps. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, do you perform EMGs in your practice? And do you feel like they have really any utility for radiculopathy? Yeah, that's a great question. So I am performing EMGs less now than I have in the past. Um, but certainly EMGs are something that I've done very, very frequently over the years. Um, I do think that EMGs do have uh, utility. 
Um, certainly EMGs are very helpful for evaluating scenarios where you might strongly be considering a peripheral etiology. So for example, if somebody comes in and they have um, paresthesias or dysesthesias, you know, in their hands, but they also, um, you know, may have some findings that are suggestive of, uh, of a radiculopathy, then certainly the EMG can be helpful in evaluating whether they do or don't have like a carpal tunnel syndrome or an ulnar neuropathy. It is, um, it is certainly the case that patients can come to you with more than one problem. So being able to separate and sort those out and tease those out is part of what we do in our daily clinical practice. So I think that EMG tends to be very helpful with identifying uh, peripheral uh, lesions, um, but it's it's been fairly well accepted that EMG is only modestly sensitive when it comes to being um, when it comes to identifying radiculopathy. Okay, great. Well, you answered all the questions I have. Is there anything else you'd like to add? No, I think that this is a, I think that this is a very important topic, and I thank you for for bringing it up. Um, obviously, in a in an interventional spine and musculoskeletal medicine practice, these are studies that are regular parts of our um, of our diagnostic strategy. It is helpful to know uh, which ones we want to apply for which situations. Um, certainly, um, I think when we're thinking about spinal pathology. And certainly in situations uh, where there are deficits, I, I would tend to think that the MRI would be prioritized over the EMG. Um, if someone comes to you though, and they've been, um, and you are considering the possibility of there being something peripheral, then an electrodiagnostic test may be helpful in that situation. Wonderful, that's a good summary. Plus we can't forget the EMGs are painful and patients are you know, uncomfortable when they, they happen. So you're absolutely you know. right. EMG certainly have acquired a certain reputation um, when you search for them on Google and, and they may, they may generate some apprehension with patients. Mm -hmm. Right. All right. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in and listening. Dr. Joshi has added that if anyone has any questions or would like to email him a question, he can uh, be reached by looking up uh, his profile on Emory's website. Um, feel free to reach out with him um, with any questions to him. If anyone of you listeners has topics that you want our podcast to discuss, please go ahead and send us a message on our Instagram account on the direct message option. Our Instagram account is NASSpine. There's three S's in that. Dr. Joshi, thank you for joining us. And uh, we look forward to everyone tuning in at another time. Thank you very much. Great to talk and great to connect with the audience.